Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational argument. With words from Midgley, Caputi, Adams, Stewart, Wolf, and Hagen Gruber. Let's get radical about philosophy. If this program has brought up any concerns or issues, you can call Lifeline on 13114. Thanks so much for tuning in to Radical Philosophy today. I'm your host, Beth Matthews. And I'm going to be speaking with Dr. Nardine Hamilton about Love Your Pet, Love Your Vet. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, Now, can you give us some background information about yourself? Yeah, for sure. Um, So I'm a registered psychologist, um, obviously, here in Australia, and I always have had an interest in animals and a love of animals. I wanted to be a veterinarian myself from a very young age, but found out I was way too queasy to be able to do that and uh, talk too much in school. So I failed high school. I failed everything. Um, I was too busy chatting and enjoying a social life. Um, So anyway, as um, fast forward a few years, I went back to university as a mature age student to study psychology. I had just started my first year in my undergraduate degree and um, was at a residential school at university and had the news that one of my cousins um, back in England had taken his own life. And that was a really pivotal point for me in wanting to work in suicide prevention um, and really trying to like help people so that other people didn't have to go through Um, what we'd gone through and being able to help people so that they didn't feel that that was the only choice. Um, Again, fast forward a little bit, I, you know, graduated from university, I opened a private practice, um, but I really didn't feel 100% fulfilled, like I didn't feel like I'd met my calling. And I was at our own vet one day, and there was a locum there, and she asked me what I did for a job, and we got talking, and she said, oh, well, you know, as a psychologist, you'd be aware then that veterinarians have one of the highest rates of suicide. And I said, no, I wasn't aware of that. I thought it was dentists, like, um, you know, it had been statistically many years ago. And that was sort of another pivotal moment for me where I went, okay, we have to do something about this. This this isn't okay. And so that was where my two passions of suicide prevention and working in the veterinary industry came together. Um, Because once I found out, you know, that the such a disproportionately high rate of suicide within this profession. Um, That was where I thought as a psychologist, I can potentially do something about it. So I started doctoral research and um, completed that looking at why there is such a high rate of burnout and suicide within this profession. And um, I finished that in 2016. Um, And so there was a number of contributing factors for that. 
and wanted to then sort of take it even further. It was like, okay, I've, I've got all of this research, I've developed a program to you know, help the vets cope with what's going on, but there's still so much more that needs to be done. And that was, um, again, long story short, sort of where I came up with the concept for Love Your Pet, Love Your Vet, which um, I partnered with Royal Cannon here in Australia and we developed this campaign which went global. It was hugely successful. Um, so so su successful in fact that I decided, you know, we need to take this even further and do more to help the profession, help raise awareness in the community. And so that was where I ended up registering Love Your Pet, Love Your Vet as a charity. So it's now a registered charity and, um, you know, we've been doing some amazing things Again, globally, because it is a global issue that we're dealing with. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's I'm trying to really summarise a very long story into a short story. But essentially, um, so I founded the charity. I work, um, well, I guess it's full-time role in the charity. And I also work a full-time role in my private practice where I work exclusively with those in the veterinary profession. Would you, would you explain about your involvement in love your pet, love your vet? Yeah, for sure. Um, so the idea behind this was to be able to have a platform, I guess, originally to be able to raise awareness because the, unfortunately, you know, and I, I, it's not that we like talking about suicide, but unfortunately, this is the reality. Um, you know, here in Australia, veterinarians are up to four times more likely than the general population to suicide and twice as likely as other health professionals to suicide. Globally, it is is up to um, some countries, it may be two times, it might be up to four times as well. So this is a global issue, it's not just restricted to Australia. But what I wanted to do with Love Your Pet, Love Your Vet is be able to reduce the stigma for all veterinary professionals to reach out and get that support so that they don't feel stigmatised, they don't feel embarrassed or ashamed or less than um, ideal or anything like that if they need to reach out and talk to someone. So reducing the stigma, normalising these conversations, making them realise that they're not alone, they're not the only person that's going through you know, the feelings and the experiences that they have. Um, so we want to make it okay for them to reach out and get that support to, again, try and reduce you know these high statistics also um, we know sadly that one of the major contributing factors to the burnout and the suicide is dealing with difficult customers and that can be the customers who or the clients who abuse them they threaten them uh, blackmail them so emotional blackmail um, go in, you know, to the clinic with the expectation that their services should be provided free. Um, you know, all of these things. I mean, the, I could go on and on about the things that they're subjected to. Um, and so we want to be able to raise awareness in the community that community behaviour or the client's behaviour can really make or break the vet team as a whole. It's not just the vets that are suffering, the nurses, the technicians, the practice managers, um, you know, all of those working within that environment are um, exposed to these stressors that we want to be able to educate the community to say, you know, like just going in and saying thank you, you know, don't make that snide remark or, you know, make comments that you're just in it for the money because they're really not that well paid, um, you know, and, and it's just all of these things, this whole combination of things that 
that behavior again could can really make or break their day. So if we can educate people and let them know, you know, what's going on and the reality and sort of, I guess, dispel the myths and the perceptions out there that they're playing with cute little puppies and kittens all day and earning a fortune and driving their fancy cars and live in their mansions, all this sort of stuff is really so far from the reality of what's happening. But if people don't know, then how are they expected to know any different? So we want to be able to educate um, and raise that awareness, you know, and I guess help these vet professionals to get the respect, um, you know, and the, the gratitude or just, you know, the thank you that they deserve. And then the third component of what we're doing is to be able to actually provide some psychological and educational support to the vet professionals. So it was important to me when I was setting up Love Your Pet, Love Your Vet that not only do we want to reduce the stigma, um, we want to be able to give them the platform to be able to provide that support. So we're encouraging them to reach out and get support, but we also want to let them know that, okay, you know, we're here to help you and guide you in the right direction to be able to get that support. Plus there's things that, you know, we do in providing some of that support ourselves. You mentioned before that vets are four times more likely to commit suicide than the general population, but what are the actual statistics or suicides amongst vets? Yeah, so, and again, um, here in Australia, it's roughly, the, those statistics works out roughly at around one suicide every 12 weeks. Um, there's, I mean, obviously not all suicides are reported. Um, certain states don't record occupations on the death certificate, so there could actually be higher rates. Um, than what's documented. Um, some may be ruled accidental, obviously, depending how they've, they've done it. Um, so they may not be ruled as a suicide, but in fact could be a suicide and vice versa. Um, I know just from, from closely, there's uh, three or four vets that I know of in the last 12 months in Australia alone. There are also, um, I'd say in the last eight or nine months, um, two vet nurses that I've personally heard of, uh, wildlife carers um, that I've heard of. Um, and again, you know, it's, you know, we, we're talking up to, up to four times. Um, the, the actual numbers can be quite low in comparison, but when you convert that into um, those numbers per population, that's when you know, we get those rates of up to four times the suicide rate. And again, because not every state and territory are documenting the occupation of the person who's died and on the death certificate, it's not, um, as I said, in Queensland, um, I know they weren't, I don't think they are, they are doing it yet. They don't put the occupation of the person. So we can't say, you know, there was 300 people in Queensland in this period. We just have to work holistically with, you know, the statistics as a whole to say this is what it is when we hear about them. So it's, it's quite, quite complex and it's all just how the statistics um, have been developed and how the statistics work out that we're able to get those figures. But yeah, roughly one every 12 weeks in Australia. Yeah, it's really, really not um, acceptable. But um, no. now you have partly answered this question, but why do you think that the suicide rates are so high? Mm -hmm. Yeah. With difficult people? 
That's definitely one of the, the contributing factors. So in my research, I found five main contributing factors. So dealing with difficult customers, that can also be the customers who are non-compliant with treatment. Um, so they may go into the clinic and say, you know, like my dog's got an ear infection, I need you to fix it now. And, you know, so the, the vet might prescribe medication and say, right, you need to administer this, you know, twice a day for the next seven days. Um, and then the owner doesn't do it and then they come back and say my dog's no better and then they blame the vet for it <laughs> when they haven't actually done it it's sort of like well how can you expect you know the dog's condition to improve if you're not treating it it's same as us you know as humans you know if you're you've got something wrong and you don't do anything about it then you may not recover as quickly or you may not recover um, so again it's the same concept with um, with animals um, Unrealistic expectations, that can be twofold. It can be the unrealistic expectations that the clients place on the staff. Um, so, you know, they might have a 15 or 20 minute consultation. They um, can come in, expect an instant diagnosis, a complete cure, all within that 15 or 20 minute consultation, and they don't want to have to pay for it. Um, or they might abuse the vet for being too expensive and, you know, all those sorts of things that, um, you know, that, that can come into it. Um, but on the other hand of unrealistic expectations, uh, the ones that they, the, the staff and particularly the vet place on themselves. So typically vets are high achievers and perfectionists, you know, and it's sort of like a, a common thing. And I say it respectfully, of course, um, but they are, you know, like to, to get into university, usually it's the best of the best. You know, you have to be a high performer to be able to get accepted into university because it's, you know, so such a competitive industry industry and the requirements for what they have to do are really high um, so then they you know they're going through usually five years of university if they're doing their um, bachelor's degree go through five years of university again it's drummed in you know you have to do this you have to perform you've got to be doing the best all of these aspects that um, tie into it and then you know out in the real world um, again these expectations are placed on them you know from the customers from themselves so they can put these really high expectations on themselves that they can't ask for help they have to be perfect they're not allowed to make a mistake so there can be a really high incidence of imposter syndrome which is where people feel like an imposter um, within their own profession um, so they feel like they're not qualified enough or not experienced enough or not knowledgeable enough despite the fact that they have you know the knowledge and the the qualifications and um, depending on you know whether they're a new graduate or more experienced vet you know the experience and everything to go with it so that was um, unrealistic expectations was twofold performing euthanasia um, was definitely up there and when I started my doctoral research the performing euthanasia was the literature was pretty much saying that that was the, the main contributing reason. But as I got into my research and I was interviewing practicing vets, um, it soon became apparent that it wasn't the single most contributing factor. Definitely it's up there. Um, and again, you know, things have changed, I think somewhat over the years where the convenience euthanasia tends not to happen as much. Whereas previously, you know, if someone said, oh, I'm going away on holidays, I can't get my dog into a kennel so we may as well just get it put to sleep um, you know so it's done for convenience so I know that there's a lot of vets that will refuse to do that um, now and 
I 100% agree <laughs> with that, I have to say. Um, so you, performing euthanasia, absolutely. Um, compassion fatigue is another big one, which is that fatigue that comes from being so compassionate all the time. So it's very common in the helping and healing professions for compassion fatigue to kick in. I do say that I think vet professionals have a double whammy of compassion fatigue. So typically, so myself as a psychologist, you know, and other health professionals for the human um, counterparts, we're just dealing one-to-one -one with humans. So we have that compassion for the person or the persons that we're working with. With the vets, they've still got that compassion to the owner or the carer of that animal, but then they're also being compassionate towards that animal and not wanting to see the animal suffering in any way and, you know, trying to do the best and allow that animal to have the best quality of life. So they sort of get a double whammy with it. Um, and then the last one is financial issues and concerns. Again, that's another one that's twofold. It can be um, from the customer perspective with the, the customers who either don't want to pay or yell at them for being too expensive. Um, and, it, you know, again, the typical one, you're just in it for the money. All of those sorts of things, which really are certainly not helpful and not always accurate. Um, but also remembering that, you know, these practices are still a business and somebody owns that business and it's, a, it's the financial stress of running a business. Like, um, you know, anybody that runs a business and has responsibility, you still have rent to pay, you have equipment to buy. Um, you know, if you employ staff, you have wages and superannuation and tax and, you know, uniforms and supplies, all of these things that come at a cost of running a business. And it's important to remember that within a vet clinic, you know, the ultrasound machines, if they have ultrasound in there, um, some of the clinics that have the CT scanners, the MRIs, the majority of the time, those machines are the same as in the human medical world. Um, you know, they, they could be hundreds of thousands, um, if not into the millions of dollars. Um, I, know, I know one clinic that had an MRI put in, it was well over a million dollars to get the machine um, you know so they've got to have the money to be able to to provide these things so that aspect was also another very big um, issue that contributes to this and this is I think you know why we want to be able to raise this awareness and make people aware that um, you know these practices they generally don't make a lot of money you know the the average profit margin of a vet clinic is less than 10 percent so it's usually around seven to nine percent profit which really isn't a lot of profit when you think about it you know for for running a business and um you know the other aspect i know a lot of you know my vet vet colleagues and i would call a lot of them my friends now as well that when you know how how smart the vets are, you know, again, very high achieving people that when people say you're just in it for the money, it's like, do you really think I would go through all of this? You know, I'm smart enough to pretty much study anything I could want to study. If I was in it for the money, I would be studying something that would make me a lot more money than being, being a vet. Um, so again, you know, it's just these perceptions that are out there that I don't think have ever really, no one's really set out to educate people and just let them know that, you know, this perception you have about this isn't necessarily accurate. Um, you know, so getting that awareness out there and, and helping people understand so that we can try and make life easier, you know, for our vets and our nurses so that they don't get burnt out and that suicide isn't the option that they elect to choose. I guess we'll 
with um with with people's behaviour, a, a friend of mine took his dog to the vet, and when he was there, a woman came in with her son and and the kitten, and the vet nurse asked what why they were there, and she said that the kitten was there to be euthanized because um her son wanted a different coloured kitten. And oh my, my friend gave the kitten a home, and I think she was relieved by this because, well, she didn't mm. have to pay the vet bills. But is is that fairly common for vets to have to deal with people like that? Yes, I think there are. I mean, there there are people, and you know, as I was saying before, I think it's changed a little bit as far as like that convenience euthanasia. I mean, because remembering performing euthanasia is again, one of the contributing factors to their high burnout and suicide rate. And so when they're having to do it unnecessarily, um, that can just increase the amount of, of stress that they're having to deal with. Um, it can be hard enough for some, like not, not all of them struggle with euthanasia, but depending on the circumstances around the euthanasia, it can have a big impact. You know, if there's this healthy animal that, you know, even if it's been injured or if it has an illness, but it could be treated and the owner for, for whatever reason elects not to go ahead with that treatment and um, elects to euthanize instead, that can be contributing to the stress on the vet staff. Um, because, you know, thinking that most vets get in it because they love animals and they value the quality of life for animals. And when they see an animal suffering or, you know, potentially going to suffer unnecessarily, it just starts to increase, you know, that psychological distress. Um, you know, so it's those sorts of things that I think, you know, like I know there's a lot of talk out there and all of these myths, you know, if you can't afford to treat an animal, you shouldn't have one. I don't necessarily subscribe to that because um, I know myself that we've been in times that, you know, where you've had unexpected emergencies come up. And for me, it's like, okay, I'll, I'll sell whatever I have. I'll do whatever it takes to, you know, be able to afford to, to treat my pets. I wouldn't just go and say, oh, okay, don't worry. I'll, you know, put that one to sleep and I'll just go and get another one. That's, that's not definitely not how I would see it because for me you know our pets they're part of our family they are an extended part of our family um you know and I I feel again you know that that's how we should treat them as that we wouldn't just go and say oh you know like if we've just had a new baby it's like oh I really wanted a you know blonde head baby not a brown head let's just send it back and you know try for another I mean we wouldn't do that to our family you know to our children so why do we think it's okay to do that to our pets so it's this sort of thing but again I think a lot of it comes into educating the community you know around responsible pet ownership um, you know, and the likely costs, if you can't afford pet insurance, then perhaps, you know, putting some money aside, um, just in case, you never know what emergency or what illness could come up completely out of the blue. And as I said, we've been there, we've had emergencies, we've had unexpected illnesses in our pets. And as a responsible pet owner, you need to be able to be prepared to deal with that effectively. Um, and not just, oh, I'll just, you know, put it to sleep and I'll just go and get another one. You know, it's just that the animals deserve better and so do the vet staff having to deal with that. Yes, look, a lot of people think that vets do charge too much, but when you break it all down and think about it, they have to be um, a specialist in um, administering aesthetic. They have to be an anaesthetist. They have yes. to be... More so than a GP doctor, they Absolutely. have to be a specialist 
in everything. And they have to be a surgeon. I mean, I, yes. I don't know any, of any, any surgeons or any doctors that can actually do the amount of different procedures with such accuracy that vets actually do. And I think they're absolutely amazing, incredible people that they actually do all of the things that they do. And so when you actually think about it, they don't charge very much at all because, I mean, in this country we have, have free health cover mm. and, and that probably adds to people thinking well you know I can go to the doctor and go to a bulk billing doctor and get it for free why should yes. I pay for my pet is would that be the underlying sort of mentality of thinking yeah I charge too much I, I think I think it has a huge component to it because as you said you know we have Medicare here in Australia that we're we're very spoiled, I guess, in the big scheme of things that we are really lucky. And also, you know, our medications, for the most part, you know, we, we do get a lot of those medications that are subsidised by the PBS. So we could go into the, the pharmacy and perhaps, you know, get a script of Mobic for ourselves and it might only cost us 10 or $15 because it's subsidised through the PBS. But if, you know, we have to go and, you know, I've had my own dog on Mobic um, before through the vet, it costs more money because the pharmaceuticals for the vets aren't subsidised. So you're paying 100%, you know, of the cost of that pharmaceutical um, medication. And I think just going back to what you said, we actually have a poster, a Love You Pet poster, when you were talking about um, the different specialisations that vets are and we've, we've got it to 36 um, equivalents so vets occupation is com comparable um, we've got it down to 36 medical specialists for humans and we actually have them all listed out on a poster and we have to remember this is for multiple breeds and species as well you know like a, a human doctor you know learns the female and male bodies and obviously you know we have children and then we have adults whereas you know our our vets they're dentists, they're cardiologists, they're anaesthetists, they're dietitians, you know, they're, they're a psychiatrist, they're a pharmacist, they're a surgeon. I mean, all of these occupations and there's so much knowledge that they have to have and the, the cost of our pets treatment, we don't get any Medicare or Pedicare as they call it. Um, you know, we don't get any subsidies. So if you imagine um, when you go to the doctor, you know, as you said, and if you're bulk billed or if you're getting a rebate back for Medicare, so if you're paying an upfront fee and then you're claiming your rebate back, if you go to a public hospital, if you're going in for, say, colonoscopy or you have to go and have x-rays, most of the time, these will be at no out-of-pocket expense to us. So we have this mentality that, oh, well, if my, my um, healthcare is you know, in my mind, free. I um, mean, the government's still paying for it, but, you know, we, we don't have that out-of-pocket expense. So then it does seem expensive for our vets' um, bills or, you know, for our pets' treatment. But if you actually break it down, um, you know, if you think, okay, well, if you had to pay for all of your human medical treatment, there probably would be no comparison. Um, I know, you know, I've been quoted personally, um, you know, to, to, to have a procedure done at a private hospital and it was $2,500 a night just for the hospital room. Um, so there's $5,000 just for the overnight 
like for the room. That was no treatment, nothing. Um, I, I'm not sure what the vets charge. It's been a few years since we had to do that. I think we paid a $29 overnight hospitalisation fee, I think, for our, for our dog when she was in there. Um, you know, you, you have all of these other costs on it. I mean, they're, they're the same cost. So you're in hospital, you still have to have the anaesthetist there. You've got, you know, if you have a specialist there that's doing some work on your, or a surgeon, the assisting staff that are in there, the hospital bed that you're using, um, you know, the theatre hire, all of these things, that still adds up. We just don't see it because we're not paying that cost, um, you know, if we're going through the, the public system and using Medicare, whereas we don't have that luxury for our pets. So, of course, it seems expensive because we're paying for every cent. But, you know, if you asked for an, ask for an itemised breakdown, you know, of your account, um, Personally, I really don't think it's that expensive. I know it can seem expensive. Like, oh, my gosh, it's $200. But it might be, you know, $10 for this, $5 for this, you know, all these things that add up. And it's like, okay, well, how much would I pay if I had to go into hospital and do that? As a, a human, if you, you know, you have a sore leg or something like that, you see a GP. There's one expense. They might refer you for an x-ray. There's another expense. They might refer you to go and see a specialist. You might be waiting weeks or months, you know, for some specialists to get in and have this treatment. If your animal needs that treatment at a vet, they generally, other than the surgery, but I mean, they, they do the examination, they might do the x-rays and whatever while they're there in that consultation. So, you know, they, they, they do so much um, and generally you can get it done a lot quicker. Um, as well, as opposed to the human side. And yet, you know, there's just no, um, I guess there, there's such a high disparity with the, the cost and the expectations um, out there. Because as we said, you know, when we're taking our pets to the vet, we're paying for every cent of it. You know, if we're fortunate to have pet insurance and be able to, you know, get coverage on that and get refunded, then that's awesome. I, I have pet insurance and I'm so glad I do because we've used it. Um, but, you know, I think it, this is where that education comes in that we just don't stop and think because we, we do have, you know, such a good public health system, I think, here in Australia, that we expect the same for our pets because um, we do see them as an extension of our family. So it's sort of like, well, hang on, if I take my, my child to the doctor or they have to go to hospital, then I know it's covered. So why do I now have to pay for it with my pet? You know, we just don't have that same equivalence, I guess. If this program has brought up any concerns or issues, you can call Lifeline on 13114. That sounds great. Well, thanks so much for coming onto the program today. No, you're welcome. Thanks so much for having me and um, helping us to get the word out there. It's much appreciated. I've been speaking with Dr Nadine Hamilton about Love Your Pet, Love Your Vet. This is part one of a two-part interview. Well, we've got a real treat for you today. We've got Time to Say Goodbye. On piano is Magella Drew, soprano, Katie Turnbit, tenor, Hutan Shah, more commonly known as Hutan the Singing Vet. This is from a charity concert for Wildlife Victoria.
Oh, 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 oh,